Please, if you haven't already, subscribe. Consider leaving us a five-star review if you're feeling generous and download the Action Network app. It's Sunday night, and we're here to talk about what just went down in week 15. Look ahead to Monday night football. I mean, Hardest Director of the Fantasy Labs NFL Product and Action Network Analyst. Beside me, as always, Chris Raybon, co-host of I'll Take That Bet on ESPN Plus, as well as Senior Editor and NFL Analyst at Action Network and Fantasy Labs. Chris, man, it's week 15. What's going on, man? What is up? You know, good another good week of football. San Francisco 49ers just keep on uh winning at home. So <laughs> we'll see, we'll see, we'll talk all about it. The McMullins era is upon us. All right, we'll get things started with some of our best and worst core plays of the week. Some players pay and some players slay. Who were the bankroll builders and bankroll killers from week 15? All right, so my best play of this week was none other than Devontae Adams. Do a wide receiver cornerback piece every week for the Action Network and Fantasy Labs. And, you know, some of these guys like Adams, you know, continuously try to harp on. These guys are matchup proof. You know, Bears had number one defense in DBO against number one wide receivers. Awesome pass rush, awesome corners. I get all that. But look, Devontae Adams, as long as Aaron Rodgers is under center, is matchup proof. He has scored a touchdown or gone over 100 yards in 75% of his games with Rodgers since 2016. Sure enough, today finds a way to go uh, eight catches, 119 yards. No scores on 13 targets, but managed to get a two-point conversion. All-around baller that he is on a week-to-week basis. Chris, what was your best play? For me, it was actually somebody in that game, Chris Carson on the uh, Seattle Seahawks. I just think when anytime you see that Seattle committee get cut from three to two uh, it's usually a, a good thing to pick up the lead back there and Carson's been that guy for pretty much the whole year been the lead back and you know San Francisco not a great run defense kind of middle of the pack I think they were 15th in DVOA coming into the to the week but Carson you know gets the goal line carries Mike Davis more of a, a passing down guy but Carson ended up coming up big in the passing game and really helping his his numbers well I believe he caught seven balls went over 100 got a touchdown yeah, I was surprised to see that from him. You know, we usually expect Mike Davis to uh, kind of get that pass on work. But like you said, when we can uh, remove a back from that equation, things become a lot more clear. All right, my worst play of the week, too much Leonard Fournette. I don't hate my process still, just, you know, being at home against Washington. We saw these last two weeks, uh, even unideal kind of game script. Fournette was still able to get his snaps and touches. But uh, just... We talked about this a little bit too, but just really got to be careful here later in the season what teams you're targeting because weird stuff can happen with uh, really bad teams that are out of playoff contention. Sure enough, Fournette uh, ends up going only 46 yards on 11 carries. It was pretty much benched in the second half. I mean, was hardly being used at all. Cody freaking Kessler led the Jaguars with 68 rushing yards. I was so mad I had to look it up. And sure enough, in Kessler's first 15 career games, he only had 70 rushing yards. So. <laughs> I, I don't quite know how that happened, but uh, yeah, man, having a don't, don't have too much exposure to running backs on teams whose head coach get fired at any moment. Uh, what was your worst play? Oh man, it was definitely I, Sterling Shepard. I mean, you know, it was just a struggle for him. It was a kind of a, a, a line move against the Giants. They went from being a favorite to being an underdog. The the weather wasn't very good, and Giants ended up being one of the two teams like on the slate that got shut out. So I guess there's a few ways could have probably gone with this Eric Ebron looking at you but uh, <laughs> I mean that was in a that's a different for a different reason no more of a positive game script thing but um, you know Shepard just you know this Giants passing game is really tough to trust anyone behind you know when Odell Beckham's not in the lineup uh, you know we saw Eli Manning throw incompletions on more passes than he completed today so just a, a rough day for Shepard um, and, and Saquon Barkley as well I think we're probably going to talk about that in a second. Good, good lead in there because now it's time to talk about the biggest fantasy disappointments. We, that's right. We got two of them this week of the weekend. I'm the trash man. Just throw me in the trash. You're garbage and you know it. Totally unreliable. Is that it? Undependable. That's it. You've been told off. How do you like that? Good. This week's trash men are Sterling Shepard and Saquon Barkley. Chris, you were far from the only one to go for these guys. I was in on 
both of them as well. Shepard at 22.4% was the second highest owned wide receiver behind only Juju Smith-Schuster. Saquon was at the fifth highest owned running back at 21.7% in the DraftKings Millie Maker. Like you said, Giants lost the Titans 17-0. Shepard only caught two of nine targets for 37 scoreless yards. Saquon still found a way to get 24 combined uh, rushes and targets. With that, though, he only got 56 total yards and, again, failed to find the end zone like everyone else in this game. Evan Ingram ended up being the only – really was almost the best tight end in the entire slate just out of, uh, you know, no one really was able to get much going at that position. But, yeah, man, so I guess question here, just without OBJ, you're kind of expecting to have these volatile weeks. And then what do you make of this pass offense moving forward if OBJ is going to continue to be out? I think you expect the volatility kind of with or without OBJ, but, you know, it's tough. That's true of most pass offenses in the league, but, you know, Eli Manning, not a guy who can really make things happen on his own or or move around. So, you know, if if a team like Tennessee comes in there and and they're covering well and they can get a a decent pass rush, you know, it's going to be problematic for the Giants offense. So, I mean, to close out the year, uh, you know, anytime OBJ is out, I think you're still going to look at at these guys for for value. But it's kind of one of those almost like a Jermaine Curse situation sometimes with Shepard because he's not really getting targeted that deep down the field. So when he gets nine targets, you're really expecting him to catch, you know, five, six, seven of those balls. So when he's going only two of nine, that's really going to be be trouble. But um, it looks like Ingram's being used a little bit more. It was actually a tough matchup for him today on paper Shepard had the better matchup but Ingram ended up uh, for a second straight week going over 70 yards so uh it maybe you know there's been rumors that he wasn't gonna he's not gonna be back next year I don't know if that's true or not or if, if that's even a, an issue for the team but it seems like they're uh, showcasing him a little bit more uh, down the stretch yeah I heard that rumor as well and I checked the snaps and Ingram did significantly uh out snap Rhett Ellison who's been there blocking tight end yeah you know you'd think they're first round pick from last year would be out snapping this guy but this wasn't the case in previous weeks so last two games without obj ingram's led the way with 17 targets but saquon and shepherd have been right there with 15 each so seems like a situation where yeah shepherd is the you know wide receiver one but he could end up third on his own team and targets any given week kind of same thing we see uh in situations like carolina teams with really good options at tight end and running back and now for the team that lost the public the most money this weekend or as our old friend Joe Buck might put it. That is a disgusting act. That's right, Joe. The Seattle Seahawks. We uh, touched on a little bit of Chris Carson's day, but things did not go quite as well for Seahawks betters. 72% of the public was on Seattle minus four, but people probably could have seen this coming a little bit considering the line start opened at minus five and a half. So I had some sharp money get that line down. Game started pretty great for Seattle going right down the field. Dougie Baldwin had a nice touchdown. Then Richie James immediately took the next uh, kick return all the way to the house. Ended up getting a nice back-and-forth game, went into overtime with 23 all. After a three-and-out by the Seahawks, 49ers were able to drive right down the field and kick the game-winning field goal. Chris, thoughts on this game and thoughts on this, uh, I guess, both offenses moving forward in these last two weeks and kind of uh, what do you think about targeting them, I guess, because we got Seattle competing for a playoff spot and we got the 49ers who it seems like as long as Kyle Shanahan's calling plays, I mean, they're going to be putting up points. Yeah. So this was, this was a classic kind of public versus sharp disagreement game. Uh, me and uh, Matthew Friedman actually went back and forth on this one on the Friday pod. And it's, it's uh it's one where it's really tough to bet on a team like San Francisco when, you know, Seattle, as you mentioned, playing for a playoff spot. But if you looked at the advanced metrics, San Francisco is just better pretty much across the board and everything but situational football, you know, Russell Wilson playing out of his mind, you know, Seattle's a good team on third down, but San Francisco getting more first downs per play, better on offense and defense than Seattle, better in net yards per pass attempts, whether you're looking at the splits with Mullins, uh, with, uh, with, with the whole season, including Bethard, just uh, a lot of kind of red flags for Seattle. I believe there was an article that came out on Action Network too about how home teams that are in, pl- in playoff contention the kind of fringe playoff teams uh, it tends to be profitable to bet against those teams so I guess we kind of saw that come to fruition this week and now Seattle I still like Seattle as an offense for fantasy because especially when if Rashad Penny is going to be out 
that backfield with with Carson is uh, is money in the bank. No, they play KC, and KC is one of the worst run defenses in the entire National Football League. So I think you look at them, and then you know you have Baldwin and Lockett, and sometimes you know, David Moore hits on a big play. Sometimes he doesn't, but uh, he'll get air yards, and, and that's pretty much that's pretty much their offense in a nutshell. The tight ends have been complete non-factors at Dixon and uh, Nick Vanette. And on the other side, I think Mullins he's probably a little better than they thought, but I mean I, I'm not touching him against Chicago next week. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's it's hard to touch anyone against the defense. Um, yeah. Yeah, one quick thing you brought up about uh, Carson in this next upcoming matchup against the Chiefs. Seahawks got to be one of, I mean, I don't know, a handful of teams at the most really that will kind of continue to run the ball even if game script doesn't immediately go their way. So I think they're kind of better able to take advantage of this matchup against the league's, uh, you know, dead last uh, defense and rush DBOA. Yeah, it's for Seattle, it's just I believe I read a stat somewhere that they're a great second half team to bet on. And, and I guess that wasn't the case today, but, you know, they, they will kind of stick to that run game no matter what. And that's good for the running backs involved, but it depends. You know, the run game, obviously not always explosive or efficient as the pass game. So sometimes they get in situations where they, they have to be more aggressive in the second half. But against Kansas City, I would think that the game plan would be, hey, we got to keep the ball out of Patrick Mahomes hands. Because again, Seattle, just their metrics like from down to down are not very good. They're just a, they're a very average football team made good by what Russell Wilson could do on offense and, and some timely defense. And, and that's, that's good. That's good football. That's what you need to do to win. But, you know, obviously not the same kind of talent on that team as, they're, as we're used to, you know, over the, the past couple of years in that dynasty. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how they stack up in that Chiefs game as well as a potential playoff date down the road. All right, now we're going to take a quick review of the winning Millionaire Maker lineup from M. Bonson. Becoming a DFS millionaire? Talk about a dream come true. What DraftKings lineup lived a daily fantasy fantasy this weekend? All right, Mr. M. Bonson totaled 206.44 DraftKings points. Kind of a funky week. Didn't see anyone, you know, truly, truly go off. But, yeah, basically started things off with a Matt Ryan, Julio Jones stack. Went with uh, Marlon Mack and Joe Mixon at the RB spots. Uh, Also Dalvin Cook in the flex. Rounded out the wide receivers with Mike Evans and Kenny Galladay. Tight end was Kyle Rudolph. And the defense was the Falcons at home versus Josh Rosen and company. Chris, thoughts on this $1 million winning lineup? Yeah, I think the first thing that stands out is the three wide receivers, Evans, Galladay, and Julio Jones, all of them 7.4% owned or less. And all three of them really are contrarian plays when you look at their matchups. You know, Evans, tough Baltimore. Secondary, Kenny Galladay has to go against Tredavious White. And that Bills defense that, you know, Bills really haven't been giving up too much or getting into too many crazy games where you need to throw that much but um you know he went off for seven for 146 you know bruce ellington wasn't there and then julio uh, going against patrick peterson usually with a lot of other studs on the slate people won't really pay up for a guy in that type of matchup and we saw that again only 7.4 percent ownership so i think that was kind of the key wide receivers tends to be that position where you can find a lot of value by differentiating whereas talk about it pretty much every week at the running back position you're probably going to want at least one of the clear chalk or value plays here. Joe Mixon, 41.6% and Dalvin Cook, 24.5%. Both of those guys scored 30 or more draftings points and you know, great matchup for Mixon home favorite against Oakland. Dalvin Cook, same thing was a little um, worried about their passing game because I thought they would kind of commit to the run. Um, but it turns out they didn't have a problem at off- on offense. Uh, although it did affect the and I think he only caught two balls, but Mm-hmm. Um, overall, Minnesota's offense looking good. So, and then you know, Falcons were just one of those top values. I think they were, uh, you know, top of our models as far as defensive values go. Kyle Rudolph, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, yo, where do these dudes come from? Like, oh like every week we see this tight end that has like, like you hit on it. Like Evan Ingram was probably the the tight end that the most people would have just kind of landed on naturally, and uh, didn't even happen in this lineup. But <laughs> you know, again, that's what happens when I when you stack these wide receivers because. I think there was probably, I would say, few if any other lineups that even had this wide receiver combination of Evans, Gallaudet, Jones, and, and no less having with the right running backs. Marlon Mack, obviously, you know, was a key play at 2%, but you can always kind of afford that one, that one dud. 
Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think you brought up a really good point about the, these, none of these receivers had good matchups this week, but I mean, kind of like I was saying earlier with Devontae Adams, these are also three guys that, you know, they can win any single matchup. I mean, Evans, you know, six, five, two thirty. he can sky over anyone. Kenny Galladay, you know, coming off that brutal week last week, you know, I think, I think we all knew he wasn't gonna be that bad, even a tough matchup against Tredavious. And then, I mean, when you look at these shadow matchups, you always got to remember, too, that a lot of these cornerbacks don't move into the slot. So, like, Patrick Peterson, for example, has only played 12 snaps in the slot all season. So, when we know there's a guy like Julio who is schemed inside a good amount and kind of can take advantage of that, that's, a you know, especially indoors, too, situation that we uh, shouldn't be as afraid of taking a chance on. Did you happen to see – I didn't – like, I, I was watching Red Zone, so I, the games were jumping around, but – for I looked at the uh, box score for the Bucks and Mike Evans essentially had all of their receiving production. Like I don't know if anyone else cleared twenty yards. Did you did, did you know if they just kind of played that straight up and were were focused on everyone else, or, or or did you not were you not able to catch anything either? Yeah, I didn't catch much of the game. I just know I was uh in on a Chris Godwin bounce back week, and I should <laughs> I should have been on uh, Kenny Galladay instead, I guess. So. Oh man, I mean it's crazy because I feel like we do the trash men, and there's always like seven runners up that we could. Because <laughs> I mean, did Goblin catch a pass? Are no, we still waiting for him not. to catch a pass? Oh, so he put him back. Oh. Uh, last two weeks, Chris Goblin, 13 targets, 13 yards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that's the Bucks um, offense. It's a ve- very volatile with that the way they kind of run it. You know, high average up the target, turnover prone, just, uh, you know, kind of hard to reach. Even Evans wasn't really uh, someone to be uh, relied on these last few weeks. But yeah, Amari Cooper, another guy who just kind of quiet, real quiet day. So. Yeah, honestly, uh, Evans had this like 64-yard catch that yeah. game was basically just chucked downfield on third and 20. So if you take that away, I don't think we'd be having this uh, conversation. But hey, man, I mean, either way, though, I mean, Evans is a guy that does make those 60-yard catches. So something you don't want to take away from, obviously. Okay, now we're going to go over some of the week's injuries. As always, uh, we'll know more about these probably on Monday. So make sure you check out the NFL Week 16 Injury Report on Action Network when that's published tomorrow afternoon. Keep your head on a swivel for the Injury Report. Okay, first injury we're going to look at. Ito Smith, Falcons' number two running back here for the better part of the season, really. Most questionable coming into the game with a knee injury. Ended up exiting early. Not sure if he re-aggravated the same issue, but was not able to return. Uh, we saw Tevin Coleman really go off. Uh, he was popping in our models, finally kind of hit that low price point, really good matchup here. But yeah, 11 carries, 145 yards, and a touchdown on the ground. Didn't really see him do much as a receiver, though, which was uh, concerning. You know, we've seen him have these weeks with uh, you know three, five receptions and make some moves, but we've also seen that his f- receiving floor is quite literally 0-0-0. Zero, zero, zero. So basically moving forward, if Ito's not able to play, we're looking at their four-string running back now with Freeman on IR. Brian Hill, who they drafted last year in the fifth round, but cut him. He spent a little bit of time on Cincinnati. He's been back. Not the most impressive guy. Chris, what are your thoughts here on this backfield entering their Week 16 matchup in Carolina against that pass funnel defense? In fantasy, if you got Tevin Coleman, probably have to play him, but it's not the ideal matchup in Carolina. You know, we thought if Devontae Freeman went down, Tevin Coleman would smash. And yeah, RB1. That, right. And that really hasn't been the case. He's had weeks here and there. Um, I think I remember, uh, a few, I think it was last week or the week before, one of uh, our Twitter followers messaged us like, hey, why do you guys keep ranking Tevin Coleman as an RB2? Like, he keeps busting. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, he's getting just enough volume. But it's, you know, a lot of those weeks, it's just he doesn't produce because he, they haven't been able to run block really for most of the season. And, you know, he was able to, to break a, a big player to today against a pretty weak run defense. But if you look at the Carolina Panthers now, they are, they went, they came into this week, number one in defensive adjusted line yards per rush. And that's a metric from football outsiders that kind of measures, you know, how good a defense can protect against like big runs and, and, play consistent down to down football against the run. So this is not the right matchup, especially if Coleman's not going to get that consistent usage in the receiving game. That's what we really need out of him because it's not going to, the Falcons could very well go back to you know rushing for under 50 yards or something like that against on a, in a road game in Carolina. Yeah, and uh, you said it, man. Number one, adjusted line yards allowed per rush. Uh, Overall defense against the run, they're eight. So, I mean, they've been very strong overall, not just on the line. And then 29th in pass DBOA. So, Mm it could be a situation where uh, Julio Jones, Austin Hooper, maybe just end up getting a little bit more volume. 
All right, next guy, Aaron Jones. Oh, man. Uh, was in a little bit of a sneaky spot just as the you know Packers kind of outright RB1 was under own this week you know against this tough uh, Bears defense but only had a couple carries was forced out of the game early rap sheet has reported he suffered a sprained MCL it's not considered serious but I mean at the very least it's really tough to see him coming back this week and inheriting that same kind of three down role in his absence though we saw Jamal Williams get a 55 rushing yards and a touchdown chipped in another 42 receiving yards I mean, he's played his last five games at Aaron Jones' sideline. He's had 19, 15, 25, 22, and 21 touches. So we've seen Williams really be that three-down guy with Jones out. And without Ty Montgomery there, I mean, are we expecting Jamal Williams to be that guy week 16 at the Jets? I think so. I think that's probably going to be the case. It's it's gonna and it's a type of matchup where it's not very imposing when you're going against the Jets. You know, a team that looks like the Packers are three point favorites, so a team that you know we expect the Packers to beat. So I think, and it's a game that you know the Packers don't have a very good run defense themselves. So I'd imagine that the Jets with Sam Darnold will be a run heavy team, and that would kind of be that kind of game, that kind of game script where the running backs on both teams will be heavily involved. So I think Williams is in a good spot. If, uh, if Jones misses another game, he's not, he's not the uh, explosive kind of back that Jones is. We talk about this early in the year because I'm kind of wondering why Jones didn't get more playing time, but you know, Williams just kind of that reliable pass blocker, that re- guy that can get you, you know, th- three yards of carry, maybe not four <laughs> lot, as much as you want, but uh, he can get you that three. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of what you expect from him. But, you know, anytime you're playing in office with Aaron Rodgers as a favorite, uh, it's a pretty good spot. So how confident are you that Aaron Rodgers is going to be out there? I, I haven't heard anything That's to suggest true. otherwise. I'm just – I mean, they're eliminated. We saw last year when they were eliminated, they really didn't push it. I mean, I know he was kind of playing with a fractured collarbone then, so a little bit different. But, yeah, man, I mean, I don't know. I feel like we should probably do a rundown this week, an article or something, just kind of seeing what the – like what 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 do these teams have to play for at this point? Because I don't know, man. I feel like that does matter. I, I know when you're out in the football field, you're not going to take your foot off the gas. These guys – you know, it's too dangerous of a sport to do that. Yes. But it's still, I mean, how concerned are you about that? I mean, I, I wasn't until you just brought it up. <laughs> no, I, mean, I just, I, I, it didn't, it didn't cross my mind because he's not like hurt, hurt, right? He's not. Right. He's yeah. fine. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think he's just going to take a two game vacation. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean might, no, I mean, he, it can happen. we've seen crazier things, but I think he'll be out there. You know, he's a competitor. The line open Green Bay favored by, I believe it was three. So I'm guessing that's, Everything from now that we've seen says Aaron Rodgers is going to be out there. So I would just think that, again, they probably do play, play it a little closer to the vest, play a little more run heavy um, because it's that kind of game. Like, I don't think they need to have Aaron Rodgers out there throwing it 40, 45 times against the Jets. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, so I think it, it does – it sets up well for, for Williams and, you know, Adam's going to keep on trucking. I, I, did you see the, the snap counts today? Because I know last game uh, St. Brown actually outsnapped MVS. Um, so that's probably something to to keep in mind. I, I didn't see the snap counts today, but it didn't look like uh, MBS was too involved either. Yeah, Marquez Valdez Scantling played twenty one snaps, and Equinemius St. Brown played forty two snaps. So yeah, he was he was the uh, outright number three. Yeah, man. I mean, I saw Rogers target Cobb, and it seemed like every single time they just were on the same page. I'd, I'd like to see him get these uh, rookies some more run here in his last two weeks, but. We shall see. Yeah, I think, I mean, ESB, if he's probably available in a lot of weeks. If you need like a desperation for your fantasy championship game or something, they are going against the Jets. You kind of mentioned it. It's kind of a game that doesn't matter anymore. So they probably will see a little bit more involvement. He's talented too, man. I remember uh, Matt Kelly, you know, awesome guy, a player profiler, oh, yeah. Roto Underworld. Uh, he, he kind of told me in the summer he was already onto him how – Basically, only reason St. Brown fell the sixth round was because he told all these teams that he was not going to play special teams, and that was not what he was about. So, I mean, you know, that, that's that's the difference. He's, a, between, you know, he's for, like the, the Jabari Parker of the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, hey, you know, it, the talent's won out over time. We haven't talked about Jamal Moore for months, so it, it is. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, all right, one last running backs to touch on. So, Frank Gore. Oh, man, the inconvenient truth. Uh, suffered ankle injury, was spotted in a walking boot after the game. So 
you would think we're, we were here to tell you about how great Kenyon Drake did and all the touches he got, but that was not the case. Kenyon Drake ended up playing 28 snaps and Kalen Ballard played 26. So pretty much a 50-50 timeshare. And then Ballard out-touched Drake 13-4. to So I think, uh, you know, we'll see how chalky Drake gets during this week, but I think it's just a good time to remind people that, look, We've almost never seen Adam Case hand any running back a future role. And last year for Drake to get it, it not only took Ajayi to get traded, but Damian Williams also had to get hurt until Drake really finally had that huge four or five game stretch to end the season. Chris, are you expecting kind of see a similar 50-50 split as long as uh, Ballage and Drake are both healthy? Yeah, I mean, it, I think they're giving uh, Brandon Bolden some touches uh, oh, in, yeah. that, in that backfield as well. So uh, Adam Gase obviously likes the committees and tough matchup week 16 against Jacksonville. They are at home, but it's another one of those games that could be very underwhelming from a fantasy perspective because you have Jacksonville that you know how they're going to kind of play. They're going to run the ball. They want to play defense, you know, especially after what happened to them on the road last week, they'll probably play a, a better game this week um, and, and getting embarrassed by a team starting Josh Johnson uh, losing that game. I think they'll actually come out better in Miami than you'd expect. Um, and Miami's a team that if they're not giving up a ton on defense, it's going to be one of those, those ugly games because they're not a very uh, aggressive team. They tend to, to, to run the ball when, when the game is, you know, in hand a little bit. Um, Ryan Tanner, who usually doesn't have that many attempts. So I think it, there's, it's tough for Drake because he, he's better in situations where Miami's down by a lot of points. They need to come. I mean, he's his the season defining play was literally <laughs> a game winner. Right. So, you know, where, where he, where he, where he outran, uh, not even a defender, but uh, a, a tight end. So, I mean, he's a very situational player. I, I love Kenya Drake. I think, um, but I think he's more of like a tournament play. And that again, kind of depends on his ownership. I almost think the Jacksonville matchup maybe won't make him that chalky and the fact that Bowage went for uh, over 100 I think if Gore's out Bowage might actually see a, a lot of ownership that that we expect Drake to get so it will kind of depend on that and we'll see what Adam Levitan who, who makes the ownership projections does a great job at it at fantasy wise we'll see what he kind of projects and is thinking as the week moves along um, but I think that's it's a situation to monitor because one of the backs is probably gonna to, to do reasonably well just because of the type of game script it projects to be but it, it's really going to depend on the ownership for for where the leverage is. Yeah, about to say, could be a, a good spot to pivot if uh, one of yeah. the guys is that much higher around. All right, quickly, a couple other injuries. Tyler Boyd hurt his knee, but he said afterwards that he'll be good to go for next week. Uh, we'll continue to be the Bengals' number one receiver. The Bills are going to be trotting out. You and uh, uh, they'll be trying out Chris and I running back here pretty soon because Shady couldn't suit up, Chris Ivory couldn't suit up, and Marcus Murphy now hurt his arm. So we'll see what they're doing throughout this week. Seemed like Shady and Ivory weren't too banged up going to the game. So, I mean, maybe they won't be starting, you know, whatever uh, four-stringer they can find on the street. And finally, uh, usually don't talk too much about defenders here, but bear safety, Eddie Jackson, is probably going to be okay. He only suffered a sprained ankle. Uh, you know, we've seen him score all these defensive touchdowns over the last two years. Looked pretty bad when he got that pick off of Rodgers, but looks like he avoided any serious injuries. Okay, now we're going to take a look at some of today's workload and notable standouts. So first one, Chris, it's been Lamar Jackson season, man. These last... Uh, Five weeks, he has been absolutely crushing it. Uh, talked on last week's uh, Daily Fantasy Flex about why his um, rushing production is a little more sustainable than someone like Josh Allen, just because of how much the Ravens are designing his rush attempts. And I mean, it was like going into Sunday, I think it was something like 80% of his yards were only from design runs. So I mean, he's more or less an RB1 with uh, you know any passing he happens to get. It's just basically bonus. But might not be that easy moving forward, huh? What do you think about uh, this next week matchup against the Chargers? Yeah, I love me some Lamar. It's crazy how his schedule lined up in <laughs> to start his career. I mean, he, he literally played, in terms of DVOA, Cincinnati 29th, uh, Oakland 31st, Atlanta 32nd, Kansas City 26th, and Tampa <laughs> Bay 30th entering the week. So he played the bottom four and then the, the, the seventh worst uh, defense, that's been the five defenses he's faced. And so Baltimore, pre-Jackson, 5.2 yards per play on offense. In that string, in that first four-game string uh, coming into today, uh, 5.2 with Jackson, and then 5.1 today uh, against the Bucks. So it's kind of actually been very similar from an efficiency standpoint as the Joe Flacco offense. It's just, it's just a lot sexier 
for fantasy because, you, as you mentioned, you get that rushing floor. That being said, this week against the Chargers, it is going to be his toughest matchup. I mentioned all those defenses, uh, you know, in, in the bottom seven. The Chargers came into this week number nine. They did give up, you know, the 28 to, to Kansas City, but that's actually holding Kansas City below their, their <laughs> average. So, uh, you know, tough matchup for Lamar. I think it, it continues to be the case. You know, I noticed uh, in our models, me and Friedman talked about this on the Friday pod as well. Lamar Jackson had one of the best projected plus minuses, but one of the worst one of the lowest floor projections. And I think it's, it's actually interesting because he, you think of him as like this hot low floor guy. Like if he doesn't, um, if he doesn't score a rushing touchdown or do anything passing, you know, he's probably going to end up with like you know 90 rushing yards and, and not that much else, but he's actually been very consistent in terms of just hitting his median. He hasn't had that like monster 30 point game yet, but he also hasn't had uh, a real disappointing game either. So mm. uh, it's, it's a, it's a really kind of fascinating situation, but I wouldn't go from go away from him here because the chargers weakness is on the ground. Still, you know, they are their their strength of their defense is past defense. So it, it could get ugly at times. I think the chargers are definitely in play as like a streaming option against him as well. But I think just because the way their defense sets up, they came into the week number 16 against the run, number nine against the pass. Um, we saw, you know, Damian Williams have some success against them. So that'll probably stay where it is or go down. And uh, yeah, I think, I think Baltimore is going to come out, come out the same way they've been coming out and run a ridiculous amount of, of runs and uh, Lamar will get his. Yeah, third most rushing yards by a rookie QB in NFL history already. And the guy's only been starting for uh, five weeks. So been very fun to watch. All right, next up, we saw him in the millionaire winning lineup. Marlon Mack completely went off, 27 carries, career high, 139 yards, and a pair of touchdowns against uh, what was coming into this week, the fourth-ranked Cowboys defense in rush DVOA. Big thing that I kind of found breaking this down, wondering uh, where the hell this came from, basically. The Colts starting center, Ryan Kelly, did return this week. He missed uh, three consecutive games from weeks 12 to 14. Obviously, you know, one lineman doesn't necessarily make all the difference in the world, but we have seen, you know, some of the elite linemen make a pretty severe uh, difference, you know, in Dallas and some of these other places. And yeah, I mean, Kelly is PFS number seven overall center. And we've seen Mac average 5.04 yards per carry in seven games with him and just 3.91 in three games without him. Chris, they got the giants at home in week 16, another pretty good spot. Do you expect uh, Mac in this Colts rushing game to keep turning? Yeah, definitely in this spot. I mean, we saw look what uh, the Titans were able to do on the road coming into to New York or New Jersey, I should say, and mm-hmm. running all over the Giants. That's a team that – I mean, run defense is one of those things where it, you, you do need some kind of motivation and some effort or you're just going to kind of get pushed back. And the Giants are pretty much eliminated from, from playoff contention at this point. And that that's a team where you do question the the motivation on defense. Whether you know they traded their best run defender and in snacks Harrison to the Detroit Lions back at the deadline or a little bit before it. So I think this is another great spot for Mac to keep on going. And they, the Colts have shown that when when their running game is working, they will give Mac a high volume of carries. It hasn't that hasn't always been the case when it's not working. They tend to go away for, from it because why wouldn't you if you had Andrew Luck at, as your quarterback? But this this is one of those games that projects as a game where Indianapolis is going to be able to control it. We saw the Giants struggle on offense at home today. Uh, we saw Indianapolis shut out the Cowboys in Indianapolis, and now the Giants have to go there. So, yeah, it sets up perfectly for Mac. Looking great. And, yeah, hats off to the Colts here. Back-to-back really impressive wins over the Texans and Cowboys who were both uh, really streaking going to those games. So we'll be uh, in the fight for that playoff spot and uh, could be dangerous. All right, last topic we'll hit on here. This new look Vikings offense. Obviously, they've moved on to their new offensive coordinator with their quarterback coach. The results, Kirk Cousins threw a season low, 21 passes. Yeah. This was the second game all season. He had fewer than 30. Uh, you know, I think we kind of talked about this throughout last week, how they could just really try to reemphasize the ground game. And sure enough, that's what happened. Dalvin Cook went off first time since week one. He had a 20 plus carries and Hey man, I think you called this last week. Cause I, I asked uh, if you thought that they would kind of go back to that featured role for him that we hadn't quite seen in a while. And with their backs against the wall, they went back to him. You expecting the Dalvin cook show here moving forward. I, I'm yeah. I'm expecting the running game moving forward too. I, I think Murray got a touchdown as well. And this was something I was worried about 
for the Minnesota Vikings. Now it's going to be interesting to see if it's, if it's fool's gold or not, because now they go to Detroit. Detroit has been a lot better on run defense since they got snacks Harrison. They haven't been that, that same pushover that they were for the first half of the season. And then they closed the season against Chicago at home. Now that's the number one coming into this week, the number one rushing defense in the league in terms of DVOA. So the whole thing about, Running more and reemphasizing it sounds great, and it works out great when you're playing a defense like Miami. That you know they 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 were actually a little bit better on early downs against the run than the pass, but still mediocre at best. You know Minnesota was able to build the lead, get ahead, so it's, it looks so it's great when that's going when that's happening. But you know now they have to go on the road against a team that plays a little bit better run defense. Let's see if they can continue to kind of utilize their true mismatches, which are not, it's not just Dalvin Cook, which, you know, had, he had been underutilized for, for part of the season, but um, also injuries playing a role into that. But they have to make sure to still be aggressive with Thielen and Diggs because really the, the issue with Filippo, and I think the real reason why he got fired, they're saying it was just because he didn't run enough. From what I looked, when I looked at it, to me, it looked like he didn't, he was too predictable and he didn't use play action and things like that enough. Like we know that if, when you look at the numbers a run game, like having a good run game doesn't actually correlate to any more play action success. So there was no reason for him to go away from play action just because uh, the running game wasn't working. But I mean, on, on paper, their running game was one of the worst in the league in terms of efficiency on early downs and their pass game was middle of the pack. So you, you expect that you should be passing a little bit more you know, if you, if you just can't run. So that's going to be kind of the, the question and the test for them going forward is that can they sustain this? Um, because it's going to look great when you're at home against a, a really bad defense. But that being said, they did look a lot better overall in offense. I mean, the passing game was very efficient. So that's the way you want to attack Detroit. Uh, they're, they're near the bottom of the league in, in past DBOA. Yeah, this was just the ultimate kind of get-right spot for them at home uh, versus the Dolphins. So Diggs led the way with seven targets. After that, it was Rudolph with three. Tyler Conklin had three. And Adam Thielen only had two. I mean, just looking ahead real quick, this Lions matchup, we would expect Darius Slay to spend most of his time on the outside with Diggs. Are you confident enough in Thielen's target share to, you know, go off and kind of have one of these big games we haven't seen for a while? I think so. I mean, I think that what you saw Seattle, you know, this is a copycat league and especially uh, from what I understand, teams prepare for their opponent by watching the last four games the most closely. And so we saw Seattle a couple of weeks ago in that Monday night game. They on, on all passing downs, they were doubling both of them. Thielen and dig so because you can always double two guys on defense it would just it just leaves literally everyone else yeah. uh, uh singled up unless you drop you know 10 11 guys in the coverage which we started to see certain defenses do across the league from time to time as well but that's why i kind of mentioned that run game again because they need to stay ahead of the down and distance so that defenses can't just resort to that tactic of doubling dealing and digs because again you know i mean kyle rudolph yes he won the millie he, he got he caught what you say? Three three balls, right? So uh, three targets. He might have caught two. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, this he hasn't been nearly uh, as much of a difference maker this year. Some of it is just kind of variance with you know getting unlucky in the red zone. A lot of his red zone targets aren't going for touchdowns. You know that could be an issue just between him and Kirk Cousins. Um, you know, Cousins said he had great chemistry with Rudolph coming into the year, but we haven't really seen it. And then you know, kind of a, a dark hole at that other wide receiver spot. You know, Aldrick Robinson's probably the ideal guy for them to have out there because he challenges defenses deep but doesn't really give you much else. And I think they, now that they want to reestablish the run, they're probably going to keep uh, Treadwell in the lineup kind of where he's been playing before because that's what he's been in the lineup for. So, again, this is just one of those things where it's not black and white with these, with these coaching changes and these philosophy shifts. Um, you kind of have to see it play out against different opponents. So I think this is kind of a, a much bigger game for Minnesota and that coaching staff now going on the road, playoffs you know, still in sight. Um, they have to make sure that they don't get caught up in, in, in running the ball too much, which is just a, a less efficient way to play football. Um, they need to be, you know, getting down and cook on the perimeter, involving them in the passing game, and, and being aggressive with their uh, with their two receiving game weapons on early downs. Absolutely. Attack uh, the defense's weakness. Don't just run the ball to run the ball. All right, now we take a look at Monday Night Football. We got a nice little matchup here. Saints are visiting the Panthers. Opened up as Saints minus seven. That's moved down. Saints are now six-point favorites. Uh, the over-under has really been in a free fall. Opened at 54 points all the way down to 49 and a half. Check out the weather. It looks like it's fine. So interested to hear uh, your thoughts on the line and what's maybe been causing this a uh, big drop in the over-under. 
Yeah, it's, you know, there's been a couple of teams, I think, New Orleans, Carolina, and Tampa Bay. All those teams out in the NFC South have been kind of playing their unders a lot lately. Um, they've generally been hitting and been the sharper play. And for New Orleans, you know, we talked about this last week. 17 points or less allowed on defense, five games straight. That's the longest streak since 2006. So they're playing really well on defense. And on the other side of the ball, since Mark Ingram came back, they've really morphed into a an extremely run-heavy team. I mean, they're right up there with Seattle for the, the most rushes in the league. They're averaging just uh, 28.8 pass attempts and 33.1 rushing attempts since Mark Ingram returned in week five. So that's amazing that in this day and age in the NFL, when we're talking about the highest scoring year ever and the the most passing touchdowns and all these passing numbers and all that, you have the Saints, one of the best offenses in the league since week five, they are running the ball essentially five, four or five times a game more than they're throwing it. And that if the Saints aren't going, aren't efficient, like we saw against the Cowboys, if they stumble, or even if they don't, which we saw kind of against the Bucks, where they, they kind of stumbled early and then they came back late, um, they have a good enough defense to, to kind of hold this game under the total, whereas that really hasn't been the case for them in, in a lot of other spots. And they are on the road. So we know the offense not quite as great on the road in a lot of these spots. So I, I, I still do like the under. I, I played it at, at under 50 and a half, though. So, I mean, it, it's kind of free-falling to the point where I could easily see it uh, – see it going over at this number but Carolina is a good run defense we mentioned that before and that's that's one thing against the Saints you know they're they're a team though I think that they will be more aggressive if they need to I, I think I, I could see them kind of using the tight end position in this game Carolina been struggling against the tight end uh, all season long on the interior and I kind of want to ask you this because uh, I know you do the article on the wide receiver versus cornerback every week and you always have a really great insight into these different matchups so I noticed that Carolina is number five entering this week in DVOA against number one wideouts and they're number 32 dead last against uh, number two. So anytime I see that, I wonder, I, I kind of think if there's like some scheming going on uh, or not um, any thoughts just on that kind of, you know, for Michael Thomas, cause he's obviously going to play a, a major factor in, in DFS on this slate and in just in this game in general. Yeah. It, it's an interesting spot. Cause to be honest with you, I mean, as bad as his past defense is, I really don't hate the Panthers cornerbacks that much. I think it's their pass rush is kind of the bigger issue here. But with that said, I mean, you know, I can't talk them up too much with uh, the way they've been playing, but expecting James Bradbury to be uh, shadowing Michael Thomas. He's their bigger cornerback uh, that they typically assign on the larger, big, bigger body, number one. And they got Dante Jackson, who's a rookie, but ran a 4-3-2. Uh, was impressing earlier in the year. He'll probably be on Traquan Smith, but... I mean, just from looking at the numbers, man, you, you would assume here that, you know, Bradbury's kind of taking the one and they're shifting the safety help over. Based on Jackson's, you know, speed I just mentioned, he is the type of cornerback that you'd be okay with leaving on an island because you trust him to, you know, not be able to keep everything in front of him and not have guys run right by him. Now, I know for a fact we saw Antonio Brown run right by him. He's not, not the fastest receiver in the league. Uh, some people at our company might not even call him a top uh, – 20 people. Uh, oh, Freeman uh, <laughs> must be enjoying what did Brown didn't clear. He got the touchdown, but he didn't clear 50 yards. I think he had, he was on like 49 yards. So Freeman yeah, was enjoying yeah, was that on, box score. <laughs> only a second time since last year, both uh, AB and Juju were under 50. That, that was wild. But uh, yeah, man, interesting here. So, I, so basically the question is uh Traquan Smith, is he going to roast the Panthers terrible defense against wide receiver twos or will these absolutely insane uh, home away splits persist? You know, I don't know what the, the, the deal with the home away splits with Smith is. I think, you know, Vienna at home is always ideal for your passing game from a protection standpoint and for, I guess, letting some of your, your deeper routes uh, develop further down the field, which is really where Smith uh, has been making his hay as, as far as fantasy. But at this point, I think the Saints are pretty comfortable kind of involving all of their receivers. And uh, I would think that if we see any type of extra attention given to, to Thomas, I think it will kind of be a, a collective effort. I think they'll definitely go at, uh, you know, single coverage if Smith is getting singled up. But um, I, I think you'll also see a lot of them attacking with, the, with those tight ends because that's really where Carolina has been, uh, you know, kind of willing to give up plays on defense. They rank number 30 in the league in DVOA uh, against the tight end position. And we've seen, we've seen a lot of tight ends have huge games against them. So I uh, so I'm looking at, you know, Daniel Arnold, the undrafted rookie who they they kind of put in the game. He's he's a receiving specialist and it's 
Ben Watson's kind of faded out a little bit down the stretch, become a lot less consistent. And Dan Arnold has really been the reason why. Uh, I remember coming a couple of weeks ago, coming into the uh, the, the game on Thanksgiving, he was actually over a three week stretch, you know, right there, uh, number three, him and Kirkwood, number three and four in air yards uh, on the team. So I think, I think you're going to kind of continue to see a group effort, which is a little frustrating for fantasy and especially for these one game DFS slates, because it, it's kind of, it's fun in the way that there are a bunch of options as far as, you know, tournament plays and contrarian plays, but it's almost like too many at times where, I mean, I, you know, when I'm writing these things up, I'm literally going through every, like, I'm like, okay, well, you know, Tommy Lee Lewis you know, <laughs> might just get a target and it might just go like it's, it could be anybody. I mean, you have to pay attention to who's even active. So I kind of think it's going to be uh, difficult to, to nail down, but I would, I, I'm looking at the tight ends first uh, in this, in, in this spot, because that's just where the matchup uh, kind of tells you to go. And the Saints, Sean Payton are a pretty savvy team in that regard in terms of attacking matchups. So I think I'm, look, I'm just going to kind of take my chances with them, but I think Kirk would be involved. I think Smith has a chance to, to make a big play as well. Yeah, you said it with the actives and actives. I mean, yeah, it looked like Dan Arnold was kind of becoming that receiving first uh, tight end for them. And then all of a sudden, he was a healthy scratch uh, last week. Could have been more of a matchup-based thing, kind of going to that. I mean, maybe not a matchup, more weather-based, I think, because they're going to that real sloppy Tampa Bay game. Yeah, was I, 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 was he a healthy, healthy scratch? I thought he was... He might have been banged up a little bit. Yeah, I think he was banged up in practice. And um, he was definitely, I think, on the injury report, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, like he could have played and they chose to hold him out. So, yeah, like he's a guy actually do have to make sure he's active. But if he's active, I would expect him to be active this week. He would be the guy I'm looking at first. Like if you look at the last three weeks, um, you know, Arnold, when he was active, you know, 20 percent uh, share of the, the the air yards and Kirkwood, 19 percent. So these couple of guys here are, seem to be the guys that they, they want to involve the most down the stretch that they're trying to kind of get ready for the playoffs. Notice that a couple of weeks ago in the, in the Dallas game where it was Kamara, Ingram, Thomas and, uh, and Smith. And then the only two other players that got targeted outside of those two were Kirkwood and Arnold. So, you know, those just you know, for whatever reason, seems to be the guys. Josh Hill plays a lot of snaps, uh, mm-hmm. not really seeing many, many targets. So it's kind of, it's kind of tough because he's a guy you'd probably look to in this matchup, but tends to end up blocking more often than not. So um, I think it's, uh, you know, Watson is probably a, a sneakier play just because he's, when he's in the game, he's, he's another guy that's going to be in the game to do one thing, just catch the football. Yeah, you said it. Josh Hill's there blocking guys. So yeah, we'll uh, make, make sure you're following uh, at Fantasy Labs NFL, and we'll get all those actives and actives out uh, the second they're available to the public. And you know, any guys like Dan Arnold that are relevant to DFS and may, may be uh, scratched or inactive, we will let you know. Chris, thoughts here on Kamara versus Ingram, real quick. Just, I mean, it, it seems like that Kamara is basically kind of taken over as a 60 40 guy, uh, as kind of compared to their 50 50 split for kind of the middle part of last season. But, you know, they have been, as you mentioned, run the ball so much more since both of them have been available. So, I mean, is this a viable spot for Ingram on the road in this tougher matchup? Or do you think Kamara is just, I mean, definitely the way to go? I think it's a viable spot for Ingram because. The Saints are, again, with them playing so well on defense, it kind of creates a situation where more often than not, they end up in positive game script. Positive game script tends to favor Ingram because when they get behind, Kamara is generally the guy they want out there just for matchup purposes. It gives the defense a lot more to worry about and in terms of coverages. And so it's it's tough to take him off the field when when you you absolutely need a score. Um, sometimes they end up putting both of them on the field. But um, when you have a lead uh, and then you, you need somebody to run between the tackles. Now, again, Carolina, very good run defense, number one in the league in adjusted line yards per rush. That's just 3.48 per rush. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's tough to predict, but I think this is still a good spot for Ingram. Like I have him as a, you know, kind of a, a low-end RB2 in, in fantasy this week. And I think he – the, the tough thing for him is just that he's not – supplementing his rushing production because he's getting double digit carries because of the, the how run heavy it is but he's just not supplementing it with nearly as much passing game volume as we've seen out of him uh, in the past uh, particularly last year when his target share was 13 percent uh, you know this year it's sitting here around eight percent so that's kind of been what's made him so volatile on a week-to-week basis this is a week where you think they would throw it a little bit more maybe to the back because Carolina is a good run D. Maybe you kind of use the, 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 the passing game and the short passing game even more as an extension of the run game. But Ingram is definitely a viable spot. And he's also like the leverage play on Kamara and pretty much the whole offense because True. he's generally the guy that, you know, if he's 
running it in for a touchdown, it's not good for Breeze. It's not good for Thomas. It's not good for Kamara. So he's kind of that one guy that when he's cooking, you kind of have leverage on some of the other Saints who are usually a little bit higher on. Definitely a big leverage play on these single game slates for sure. All right, so let's look at the Panthers offense now. We, we know McCaffrey is, you know, he's playing 95% snaps this year. It's, it's crazy. He's locked in, three-down feature guy. We also know Ian Thomas, uh, he's really come in, taken over for Greg Olson as that three-down guy and seen him kind of be using that same receiving way, a bunch of snaps in the slot and out wide. The question with Carolina is, is these wide receivers. I've seen the prop market uh, these last few weeks really be thrown off in, in terms of, you know, they just got Devin Funches back. They just got Torrey Smith back. But we've had these two games now with all these guys healthy. And we've seen Curtis Samuel and DJ Moore just really emerge as the top two guys. This has also coincided a little bit with, you know, this losing streak they're on, not playing great ball. But, I mean, I, I personally, I think Samuel and Moore are their, are their two best options. It should be the guys out there. Do you consider them the, these top two receivers and the top two guys to kind of target in the passing game? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of places I see it uh, has have more like a, a way ahead of Samuel I personally can't project it that way. When I look at it, it's hard to kind of find a rhyme or reason to project any, like one of them significantly ahead of the other. Uh, The Saints do like to play man coverage, if I'm not mistaken. So I think more will get his chances on Eli Apple. All those guys kind of wrote, they all can play the slot. So, you know, Samuel and Moore both can can play in the slot and will move around. So I think they'll both get some shots at, at PJ Williams. I like the spot for both of them. I don't pretend to know, you know, which one is going to definitely like will have a, a huge game or, or not. But I think both of them kind of have, a, in my eyes, a similar outlook. And it's it's a good outlook, um, especially in a game like this where New Orleans may end up, you know, putting up one of the, the higher point totals on Carolina that we've seen this year, which, um, you know, we know Carolina likes to run the ball. Cam Newton hasn't been 100% lately, not necessarily taking as many of the, the, the shots downfield, which is another reason I think that that under is getting smashed when it opened at 54. So I think this is a, a spot for, for more and for, for Samu to both eat. I mean, do you think, you know, the, do you think that Funches is going to kind of be relegated to this, this role now? Cause I know when he first came back and he was playing kind of the abbreviated snaps it was around like 40% or so he was coming off an injury, but then he had a second game in a row of that. So you think it's going to kind of go forward like that. And do you think Jarius Wright continues to see time in the slot as well? Because he's, he's actually been out there, uh, more than Funches, and he would have that that good matchup in the slot. Then, yeah, I've actually I've heard a, a few rumblings like could Funches even be on the team next year? And oh man, I mean, I, I think he's better, obviously better than Kelvin Benjamin, but he is that similar kind yeah. of just bigger body, physical type of receiver we've been harping on all year. And to really see them make that shift to Samuel and more, just more dynamic guys. I mean, Panthers are really unique in how much they use their uh, wide receivers, kind of orbit motion, and that unique run game they have with a. Uh, Cameron McCaffrey already so I think having Samuel and Moore out there makes them a lot more dangerous and they can attack uh, a lot of different angles Bunches is helpful I mean it's not bad to have these guys you know we we even saw the Chiefs uh you know using Benjamin in a decent way uh uh, the other night but uh yeah man and and Jerry's right it seems like he's the slot guy but Samuel and Moore can do that as well it really does seem like that you know they're kind of head and shoulders above these other guys it's more of a two wide receivers and three or four yeah, I think the thing about Funches and especially for for like the one game slate is that the best place to use him is in the red zone. And so uh, that's something I think you still have to to look out for when when you're making these rosters and, and taking into consideration is that Funches could end up just playing a red zone role in a high in a high scoring game even though the over under is going down still kind of a uh, you know around 50. So you know, he could still factor in, but I agree. I think I've, you know, we have been talking about this whole year and it's good to see, you know, North Turner kind of realizing that is that in this day and age with the way the rules are going and the limitations placed on defensive backs and what they can and can't do in coverage and, and with their hands and, and all that, um, it's really opened the game up for these faster, shiftier, quicker type of wide receivers to flourish at the expense of, of some of these bigger guys that can't get in and out of their breaks fast enough. And, and you know, we saw ben, we see Benjamin go from and I'm, I'm sure the, the ACL had something to do with it, uh, among sure. other things. But, um, you know, we saw him kind of go from a, a sought after kind of rookie on the ascent to a guy who just is almost a joke at this point. And I think I tweeted a couple of weeks ago, like Josh Allen throwing to, 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 to Kelvin Benjamin. That was one of the big reasons his passing numbers looked really atrocious 
early on, you know, targeting Benjamin was, was to, to blame for a lot of that. And I think you're, you're starting to see, you know, without uh, Benjamin there these last couple of games as that kind of number one, number two guy, even Allen's been a, a lot more efficient in the past game over there in Buffalo, you know, he's hitting Robert Foster and getting McKenzie involved and, and Zay Jones and whatnot. So these bigger receivers are going to have to kind of reinvent themselves and maybe they going forward, they are just kind of more situational, situationally used players. I mean, I think the NFL is because of, the way the rules are going and the, the teams are getting smarter and the way the game is starting to be played. I think we could start to see a lot of different uh, changes going forward in terms of how players are used. And we might see more of these like uh, red zone specialists pop up and more of these smaller Tyreek Hill archetype, number one wide receivers instead of your classic Des Bryant. Yeah. I think there'll always be room for the bigger body receivers in the red zone when the windows are, you know, just naturally smaller, Mm -hmm. but yeah, man, I think we're seeing kind of like a basketball S revolution where there's, I mean, the receivers, you know, we keep every week. There's like kind of a defenseless receiver penalty where they basically have the ball. And it's like, how are you calling that? But you know, it's not that if you you see safeties these days, I mean, it's not the headhunter league. It was even like 10 years ago. And you know, I think those smaller receivers had trouble uh, surviving in the yep. older days when it was so much more physical. And, you know, same thing with kind of Steph Curry and some of these smaller basketball players that maybe uh, couldn't have thrived as much back in the day without the same uh, kind of medical advances and just generally, uh, you know, having the less physicality. So well, I'm definitely interested to see how this uh, kind of evolves over the next few years. I will give Steph Curry credit, though, because the one thing about Steph, he worked for, for, for his kind of renewed durability. Um, oh, his balance is insane. Yeah, so what he, yeah. he started doing was a lot more uh, deadlifting and really building his core and his base and, you know, his legs up. Because a lot of, you know, athletes doing something as simple as weightlifting optimally, um, and, and Steph kind of really made an effort to, to kind of improve the power in his lower body. And I think that showed even in his shooting range where um, he could comfortably pull up now from, you know, 30, 35 feet out. But um, different different time, different sport. But, <laughs> yeah, man, uh, uh, definitely, definitely see what you're saying here as, as far as the uh, the basketball kind of position with switch and, and position is going to change up. So you're saying maybe uh, one of the league's best and most dynamic young receivers who doesn't like water, uh, that, that could have an impact on his performance? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's cra- You know, it's crazy. I, you know, going back to kind of just in general, I, I, want, I, was, I wanted to bring this up, but like we, we do all this handicapping and kind of forecasting. And I, I came across an article this week on ESPN, I'm sure a lot of people heard about already uh, about Joe Kim Noah, and he was talking. He was on a podcast talking about, I guess, um, why, why why everything went wrong with the Knicks, and he's saying, "Hey, I was just too lit. Like I, I was too, <laughs> or I would leave every game, and I have like 60 people with me, and they would be in my house, and we party, and and they were like, but, 'But didn't you party in Chicago too?' He's like, 'Yeah, but you but you recover faster.' So it kind of essentially what he's saying is drinking hard and partying hard every night, you know, it's tough to recover and, and get up for a game. And I, I just kind of wonder how much, you know, it's, it's tough. We can never really quantify it, but I just wonder how much that factors into these NFL games as well. Cause you know, situations like, for example, Patriots always struggling in Miami. I mean, that's Miami. <laughs> Late in the year, you're, 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 you're in Foxborough in the winter and then you get like, you know, they usually go to Miami late in the year and uh, you just wonder, you know, how much things like that are, are kind of factoring in. And we, sometimes we, we break it down and we're just like puzzled by a certain team or a certain situation. Like why do they play so bad? And, you know, we can look at it as much as we want, but I feel like there's a certain percentage of the time where it's just something that's like something very human and not at all statistically related that just, people are, are, are hung over or they just, just didn't have a good week of preparation in whatever way, shape or form. We need the Raiders to get respectable <laughs> fast so we can start pounding those uh, lines there in Vegas. Oh my goodness. I just, I didn't even think of that. There's going to be so many road teams that are just, yeah, they're going to be like, you know, 10 and one against the rest of the league and like uh, <laughs> Owen, Owen, whatever against the Raiders and when they go to Vegas. There's yeah. There's a wild trend uh, with the Vegas Knights last year. Uh, teams that like basically had a night before playing them in Vegas for just getting smacked against the spread. Obviously found out the Knights were, kind of in a class of their own for a lot of the year, but definitely something to think about. All right. There's no Thursday night football this week. We got a couple more Saturday games. So make sure to tune into the week's uh, later podcasts and we'll go over those. So we're going to wrap things up here with our weekly bet. All right. Last week we had the Viking Seahawks game. That was three, nothing after three quarters. Uh, Wasn't the best one to bet on. Chris took the over. uh, (sighs) the uh, Vikings <laughs> offensive coordinator got fired after the game. So I'll, I'll really need to go into oh. it that I took Seahawks minus three. I mean, it, it won, but it, it wasn't all that pretty. Chris had Russ Wilson. 
man, I'm pretty sure I took Chris Carson, but not. Nah, I think you had Diggs. I mean, anyone had more points than Russell uh, Wilson, I think, right? No? Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I might have had Diggs, though. That does sound yeah, right. You definitely had Diggs. I think you're like, you can have Thielen, and I was trying to be contrarian, and now oh, I was right. like, all right, I'm going to go rest. Um, and, I got one anyway. Yeah, you run. You, you, I'm regressing to the mean after a hot start. <laughs> <laughs> and I think hey, you got man. first pick this week, too. All right, here we go. We got Saints minus six, and the over-under is 49 and a half. I'm going to take your sharp move here and take the under. Hopefully it's not down too low already. But, uh, yeah, I'll go under here. I think, uh, like you said, I mean, Saints have the look of, you know, this high-octane pass offense, which they can definitely be. But, you know, they're going to run the ball. And against this uh, Panthers team that we have seen, and Duncan and Duncan more and more could end up being a sneaky low-scoring game. I like it. I like it. That's that's what I would have taken uh, for for my pick. I will go with the, you know, it's at six now. There there was value when it opened. I think at six, I think I'm going Saints. You know, I think if it was a little more value. It got got bet down a bit, um, but I'm going with the Saints here. I think they're still rolling out. I just don't think Carolina's quite right. They've lost a ton of one score games, but this is a this is a Saints team that they can't throw on you. You know, just because they are a run heavy team. Um, they can throw on you if they need to. And that's that's really been Carolina's uh, weakness. And I expect the Saints to be able to to keep on rolling. And I'm, I'm really kind of worried about Carolina's offense if, if Cam Newton's uh, not 100%. For sure. And, I mean, we, we've seen him on that injury report all season with the shoulder. They're talking about potential offseason surgery. Definitely not 100%. All right. Who do you think is going to be the highest scoring player? I'm going to go Kamara. I mean, he's just – I'm just going to go the best player on the field. I know, I know Thomas kind of has a little better – uh, on paper matchup but it's never been about on paper with Kamara so I'm gonna just I'm gonna just go with the upside I'm gonna go on the other side of the ball and go Cam Newton hope uh hope for some of that RB1 Russian production he's given us in the past haven't seen him get in the end zone for a while hoping to see him uh give us that little Superman celly that we've grown to love over the years and hopefully he'll score more than Kamara all right, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to tune in later this week for the Daily Fantasy Flex and, of course, the ultimate uh, weekly breakdown with Chris and Matt. Chris, man, any last words? Let's get this money. 